0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Gary Bruce on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, The Firm, the inside story of the Stasi. You've probably heard of the Stasi. That is the East German secret police. If you've seen the movie The Lives of Others, you will have seen a depiction of the Stasi. I would not say, having read Gary's terrific book, that it is an entirely accurate depiction In some ways it is, in some ways it isn't. Uh, What Gary shows is that the Sazi, for all that it was a formidable surveillance apparatus, really was kind of clay-footed. Their basic problem was that there was nothing for them to uncover because there was no East German resistance to the Communist Party or to the cause of communism. People didn't like particularly the fact that sausage was expensive or that they couldn't take vacations to East Germany, at least very easily. But to think that there was an organized opposition, well, that was a kind of paranoia. But the Stasi grew and grew, and they gave the impression that they watched everybody, which in a sense did the same work as watching everyone. That's really all you need to do. In any event, Gary has written a terrific book, and I really enjoyed reading it, and I enjoyed talking to him. So without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Gary. Hello, Marshall. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Good. Um, I should tell our listeners that we have Gary Bruce on the show today, coming to us from Waterloo, Canada, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, The Firm the inside story of the Stasi. I, um, I really like this book a lot. Uh, Gary interviewed a lot of people uh, people who are in the Stasi and uh, informants for the Stasi and that kind of thing. And, and, uh, and that really, I, I think, enriched the presentation. You know, uh, Unfortunately, when people die, they take most of the information they have in their heads with them. And we should thank Gary for going and getting some of this <laughs> information from these people because it paints a really interesting and I, I think a kind of counterintuitive, revelatory picture of the Stasi because, well, we'll talk about this during the interview because I didn't really understand what the Stasi was about. Of course, pretty much everything I knew came from um, Jean Le Carre novels, so that's not, not, not such a good source. But, Gary, why don't you uh, begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Um, well, I'll go uh, fairly far back. Uh my father was involved in shipping, and so we, we lived in a lot of ports when I was growing up. And uh, my parents, for example, lived in, uh, in Quebec City and Montreal before I was born, uh, and then they moved to Duluth, Minnesota, where I was born. So I'm actually an American citizen, um, which, is, which is wonderful when it comes time for me to travel into the United States, but up here in Canada, I don't always boast about it. Um, And then after a few years in Minnesota, we moved to Chicago and to a fairly affluent suburb of Chicago. We were there only a short time. And then uh, I'm sure my parents, I I was just a little kid, but I'm sure my parents experienced some cultural version of the Benz because they moved from Chicago, Illinois to a very small town in Francophone, Quebec. Uh <laughs> called Port Cartier. And it was also uh it was on the Saint Lawrence River and as the name suggests, also a port uh where my dad continued his shipping work. So that's where I grew up. I grew up in uh in the very far north of Quebec. Uh, getting close to the to the Labrador really? border. Um it was uh uh, it was an interesting port it was um it, it was primarily served to iron ore mines in northern quebec um but half the port was for the iron ore mines. the other half was a uh grain uh port so there was an elevator there that took the grain from the uh prairies and transferred it to overseas ships and uh during the u s grain embargo against the uh the soviets uh Port Karshey became a huge exporter of grain to the Soviet Union. So uh, my my dad would sometimes joke when we were growing up that Jimmy Carter was the best president you know we had um, uh, because this business, business was booming in Port Karshey. And I actually I remember as a as a kid uh, going down to the Russian ships and they were just, they were absolutely enormous. Uh, took up the entire length of the port. Uh, could only come in at high tide and leave at high tide. Um, and uh, the Russian captains always brought us little. Pins and and things of lenin and what have you so yeah, we I, yeah. I still have I still have some of those um anyway so that's sort of, sort of my childhood and then uh I went to university uh, outside of Quebec. I started my studies at uh, Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, uh, where I was actually a chemistry major, uh, and that lasted about uh, well, about two years, I'd say. But I was always interested in history. It was from from high school and right through uh, the first two years of university. I still took history courses, and then I I just finally decided that I was uh, I might as well uh, follow my passion. Um, As much as I I found elements of chemistry quite interesting, I I decided to switch over to history and uh, at that point I began to acquire German because I had always been interested in in German history just in in high school and what have you. It seemed so compelling, Um, especially the the Second World War, the Nazi era, I suppose that's typical. And uh, so I started to acquire German, and it just moved on from there. At uh, at Master's, I went to the University of New Brunswick, um, which is uh, the eastern coast of Canada. And then uh, for PhD, I went to McGill in Montreal. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was a little bit of returning home to my home province of Quebec. And I worked there with uh, uh, an absolutely wonderful mentor named Peter Hoffman. Mm-hmm. Who you might know from the yeah. uh, uh, the work on the German resistance to Hitler and the Stauffenberg assassination attempt, and uh, well, it was a little bit in the news with the movie Valkyrie. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that I appreciated, uh, one of the many things that I appreciated about uh, uh, Peter Hoffman's supervision was his uh, absolute meticulous attention to detail. Mm-hmm. And I think that. Uh, you know, he really instilled in me that idea that history is a dialogue between the small and the big, but you have to get the small right. Mm-hmm. You have to get the details right. Uh, otherwise, that dialogue breaks down. And so uh, I was trained very much in close attention to the documents, very, very uh, a, a typical rankian approach to history. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you read any of Peter Hoffman's material, you'll see it's exactly like that. It's meticulous. It's detailed. It's uh, uh, It's absolutely accurate, and uh, that really... Rubbed off on me, uh, so that's the kind of uh, material that i that, that i uh, uh, work with uh, the kind that I'm comfortable with and in the, in the type of methodology that I like to employ mm-hmm. um, One of the things that uh, uh, Peter Hoffman works on is, is, is resistance uh, in the Third Reich, but I was interested when I started at McGill in doing uh, slightly different resistance in eastern Germany, so after the war uh, Peter Hoffman, of course, is a resistance scholar, so he was very comfortable supervising that topic, and the timing was good as far as the archives go, because I started at McGill in 1993. And that was just, really just a year or two after the Stasi archives opened, and some of the material from the East was really becoming accessible. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was a goldmine of material, and uh, I began, I guess, in the archives in uh, Berlin and in other of the eastern provinces in 1994. I think, yeah, that's when I moved to Berlin and I lived there and I I worked on my dissertation there. Um, So that was was how I got into the topic of East German history in the first place. It was just uh, the timing was very good as far as the archives becoming open. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. And how did you come to write uh, a book about the Stasi itself?
1: Interesting. When I I was doing my first book, which was on... uh, Opposition in East Germany. And I looked at uh, uh, some of these groups, these underground groups that worked in Eastern Germany right after the war, uh, 1945 till maybe they peter out in the late 50s. Um, And uh, they're very. Uh, poorly researched and not many people certainly in the general public would know about these groups. Uh, Social Democrats went underground and handed up pamphlets and things and uh, one of the major ones was uh, a group called Fighting Group Against Inhumanity and uh, they were based in West Berlin uh, and they, they engaged in low-level sabotage. Uh, they would uh, you know, blow up the occasional statue or uh, something like that. Uh, certainly, Certainly spreading pamphlets around trying to instigate unrest. Uh, the leader of that uh, fighting group against human humanity eventually went on to found a museum in West Berlin that almost every North American student backpacker visits, which is check, the Checkpoint Charlie Museum, which yeah. has all those um, great stories of these wild escapes from East Germany. Um, so uh, anyway, so so I was working on those groups. And uh, to do so, I looked at the Stasi files because they were the ones who were hunting those groups. And uh, I I realized that there was uh, an incredible, incredible amount of information uh, contained in those files. So for my next project, I knew I wanted to work more or less exclusively with the Stasi files. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was really influenced as well by a book by um, William Sheridan Allen. Uh, Perhaps you know it's, it's, it's the classic Nazi seizure of power where he looks at a... The establishment of the Nazi regime in a small
0: town. I, I don't know if I'm sorry to interrupt. I don't know if that book's read anymore. But in my day, and I think in your day too, it was. Yeah, everybody it was, had read that book by the time they got there. Yeah, degree. yeah,
1: yeah. I mean it's a, it's a great it's a great read. You know, you get kind of get to know. Yeah, the, it
0: really is a the great the book.
1: Yeah. Bookstore owner who is the first Nazi in town and what have yeah. you. Um, and I thought to myself, you know, there's not something similar for uh, East Germany, sort of what like in a small town in East Germany. Um, and then I did some more digging, and I found that the Stasi, uh, which had these county offices in uh, the 217 counties of East Germany, um, that those county offices were actually... More important in monitoring the population than uh, the headquarters in Berlin or even the regional offices in the uh, uh, you know what were the fifteen regions of East Germany um, In fact, those county offices ran more informants. They ran just over 50% of the informants uh, than the other offices combined. So uh, I I realized that these county offices were critical in uh, in, uh, maintaining regime uh, authority and that there was no history of them. Uh, Nobody had actually looked yet at these county offices. Now, I noticed that uh, the archive in Germany uh, today, the Stasi archive, which has a research branch, is in fact uh, researching another uh, county office, but uh, but my book deals uh, with two county offices because I, I wanted to have a comparative factor, um, and, uh, and and I have to say it was really it really worked out well uh, because uh, I could see from looking at these county offices just how uh, the East German regime monitored East German society.
0: Uh, let me um, stop you right there and ask a couple of questions that I think our listeners will. Uh... Want answered, and I'm sorry if they see if they seem sort of simplistic, but they just occur to me. One is, sure, uh, why was something like the Stasi set up after the Second World War? And the background to that question is, you would think the Germans had had enough of secret police. And then the the second question is, why after the Stasi was uh, dismantled? Um, did they not completely destroy all of their archives? Why does anything survive? So maybe you could take those in one, two. You see how you're, they're kind of related in a way. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would say... That- to answer
1: the first question about why was the Stasi established in the first place, is that there is a there is a transition period, so it's not established right away. It's established in 1950 um, on February 8, 1950. So this is in fact the 60th anniversary of the founding of the Stasi, and uh, so there was an intervening five years, and in the early scholarship, uh, especially in the uh, uh, from the West German uh, from West German scholars, there was this thought that the Stasi was the Red Gestapo, you know, that simply the Gestapo had that uh, uh, changed his hat and become a Stasi, and we now know uh, definitively that that is not the case. That the Stasi was founded uh, basically from scratch. That uh, uh, there's one thing that the you know the, the the communists hated the capitalists, that's for sure, but they hated uh, the fascists even more. So they they sure as heck were not going to have fascists in their secret police. Um, So there there are essentially no Gestapo officers who are taken in to the Stasi. Uh, That said, they did use some um, people with a... uh fascist past, uh, some some, uh, guards at concentration camps as informants. So they kind of used the blackmail card against them. Uh, So so there wasn't the same kind of trepidation about using a a former Gestapo or former SS as an informant, but there certainly was as a regular regular officer in the Stasi. It was founded uh, in 1950 still relatively small, um, but primarily as a a protector of the uh, embryonic Economic economy and the and the and the new uh state run economy that was being established. Uh there was concern about saboteurs or those who would not, uh, who would ruin the new economy. Uh so there was there was that kind of premise. The important thing though is that it was really a uh, a creature of the Soviets. So the KGB was intimately involved in the establishment of the Stasi, uh in fact it it ran the Stasi um for the first good many years. Uh it had the so-called advisors in the Stasi but they were really the ones who were running the show. Um and so it was the, the Soviets it did desire uh, a a German uh, sort of indigenous German presence to monitor East German society. Um, first, ostensibly with uh, the economy in mind, but then, of course, it expanded to uh, to political opponents and then just general uh, surveillance. Uh so, uh, how much how much the, the Germans noticed it at first? Oh, probably not so much. And certainly after 1953, with that uh, massive uprising that sweeps through East Germany, uh, there is uh, more of a of a Stasi presence. The Stasi grows, becomes quite large by 1971, and then of course um, by 1989 is the uh, largest secret police per capita in world history. Um, so I would say it's a little more gradual uh, mm-hmm. at the beginning, but certainly uh, uh, yeah, so experiencing the Hitler dictatorship and then the communist dictatorship, well, the truth of the matter is yes, people, people had had enough, people did not want that again, and uh, we witnessed the largest exodus in history, with mm-hmm. uh, one in six East Germans leaving East Germany for West Germany, and uh, that leads of course to the building of the Berlin Wall in August 1961. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the second question. Why, why didn't they just destroy it all? You know, they, they came closer than people think. Uh, because of the mammoth collection that's remained, I think we, we sometimes are sort of bewildered that uh, uh, that uh, they didn't destroy more. Um, there are about uh, 180 kilometers of documents in uh, the archives. <laughs> I know, it's, it's astonishing. I don't know whether it would be about 120, 120 miles. Um, Absolute uh, huge collection, and that doesn't include uh, all of the other things. For example, the uh, um, the recordings, the tape recordings that they have, uh, also huge numbers of those. Uh, the scent rags, you know, what the Stasi used. you've <laughs> Ever seen the movie The, Li- the Lives of Others? You yeah. know, where they take a scent from a potential opponent so that they can uh, present it to dogs to track down the person which to go underground. Um, all that stuff is also in the Stasi archives. So it's just an absolutely mammoth collection. Um. But there are, there are uh, parts of it that were completely destroyed. And one was the foreign espionage uh, material. So the, the Marcus Wolff's famed foreign espionage branch of the Stasi, uh, all of the material was destroyed. We do have bits and pieces of uh, uh, informant names and, and uh, cover names and what have you that ended up in the States and have been transferred back to Germany. But we don't have the material itself. The documents have been destroyed. Um, that was agreed to by the citizens as well, the citizens' committees in 1989. They just felt that that material was uh, was dangerous, uh, that it could fall into the wrong hands. And uh, so the citizens' committees themselves agreed with the Stasi that they could destroy that. So they were, in many ways, way, uh, accomplices.
0: Yeah, I just, I, I just wanted to point out to people, um, you, you make this point in the book, and you, you talk about it at some length, and, and I think there's a good reason for it. We usually don't think about kind of truth and reconciliation in the Western context, but the fact of the matter is these archives uh, contain lists of people who were informants for the regime, people that today would not have been looked upon in a very favorable light, and some of them are your brother uh, and wife and and cousin, and so yeah. there's good reason to be worried about letting this information out.
1: Well, that's that that's true, and and uh, in fact, you know, the Stasi uh, themselves did destroy a lot of the material. Not only the foreign espionage material, but uh, uh, out in the regional branches too, they they systematically destroyed an awful lot, starting in uh, uh, in late November 1989. Um, but it's not that easy to destroy that much material. You know, as, as, as sometimes compare it to trying to rip up a phone book. Yeah, Uh, you have to. You know, shredders. The shredders were were quickly burned out. Um, (laughs) They started. Well, it's true. They started doing it by hand. They actually burned uh, some of the guys I talked to. Burned material behind barns. Uh, They fed it into the into the coal fireplaces and the precincts. Uh, They tried. They did try to destroy material, uh, but uh, there was just so much of it that uh, they couldn't get through very much by the time the citizens themselves stormed uh, stormed the Stasi buildings in December 1989 and then in January 1990 they stormed the main headquarters in Berlin and they secured the archival material themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, some citizens talked about in their town how the the destruction of the material, the burning of the material, made it seem like it was snowing, you know, all the little particles, mm-hmm. paper particles in the air. Uh, and that's that's sort of the, the level of destruction that was taking place. Um, so the citizens themselves secured the archives and, uh, and um, saved the material. And that's also, one of the things that is absolutely fascinating about the revolution that took place in 1989 is that East German citizens occupied what was still an intact secret police. I mean, this doesn't happen very often. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I imagine Langley, Virginia doesn't worry so much about uh, citizens just storming it and taking it over, but it's more or less exactly what happened mm-hmm. in uh, East Germany in 1989. Mm-hmm. But yes, once the material was there, then once the material was secured, then, of course, you have the agonizing debate, exactly what you suggest—of what to do with it yeah what to do with it uh, you know should you uh should you then as a democratic society uh take the decision to destroy it all um considering uh, uh, the absolutely explosive material uh the the damning Uh, uh, reports uh, of family members against other family members uh, the obvious uh, ruining of families and and destroying of uh, friendships that would take place Um, and uh, not to mention the possibility of retaliatory murder Uh, people were very concerned about that that there would be people who would go to the archives see what their friends had said about them and come out and actually kill the person Mm -hmm. Um, that has not happened. Uh, there's not one instance of that, uh, uh, thankfully, of course. Um, but uh, yes, the material has been very, very hard for for many people to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, I still think it was it was the right decision, um, and it allows
0: certainly for many people it allows them. A, mm-hmm. So where a, a are the
1: where, certain measure of closure?
0: I'm sorry to interrupt. Where where are the yes. archives now, and who is in control of them?
1: So. Uh, oh, Almost immediately, so even before Germany uh, unified in 1990, uh, East Germany itself, now with a with a freely elected first freely elected government in its history, uh, which took place in March 1990, um, they decided that they would establish a special commission for the Stasi files. Uh, That was taken over when Germany unified, and it's now a federal commission uh, for the. Files of the State Security Service of the former GDR. It's got a very long name, um, but so they're in the hands of this federal commission, and um, and it does uh, several things. It 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 holds the archives and protects the material and catalogs it and does all the kind of usual things that archives do. It will also uh, investigate people. This was one of its biggest jobs. So. Uh, Anybody who had a STASI past was banned from the public sector in Germany. It's not the case anymore, but for the first 15 years after unification, they were banned from working and, uh, you know, as teachers, uh, government employees, uh, uh, even uh, in certain cases, railway workers and what have you. Um so one of their jobs was uh, to respond to queries from employers to say, so-and-so has applied for a job with us. Can you check if they were a STASI informant or a STASI officer? Um, and the archive would do that. That was an enormously time-consuming task and uh, really ate up a lot of its, uh, of its budget. Uh, they also have a research branch that produces very, very good uh, scholarly material. They have some excellent historians who are working on site. Um, so they are also uh, producing... Um, uh, text on the Stasi and educational materials on the Stasi, and that's mm-hmm. uh, part of its mandate. The the main files are still held where they were held uh, when East Germany existed, which is on Normanenstrasse in East Berlin, uh, where the headquarters is. And so uh, you don't read the material there. If you're if you're just a researcher, uh, you read the material actually close to Alexanderplatz in the heart of East Berlin. Uh, they bring the material in for you. But the files are actually held out in where the headquarters used to be. But there are also regional archives in each of the um, uh, cities, the uh, kind of the provincial cities, so uh, Schwerin and uh, uh, Magdeburg and Dresden, and so there's there's also regional archives. Um, I, because I was working on a regional topic, I worked in the archives in Schwerin, and in Potsdam. Potsdam has since moved to Berlin; they they consolidated there. Um, but yeah, so so the materials held in these uh, various locations actually, and um, as a as an East German very advantageous because you, can, you don't have to go to Berlin to see your files. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can just go to the nearest town.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So you picked two uh, small districts. I think we would call them something like counties here in the yeah, United States. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. and uh, they were, I, I think, I, I don't have the book in front of me, but it's Perleberg yeah. and, and Granzé. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Uh, maybe yeah. you could talk to us a little bit about where they are and what they're like.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, the the, the question I encounter, uh, particularly from Germans, when I mentioned that I studied uh, Granzé and Perleberg, uh, the usual answer query I get is, uh, you know, why didn't God's name possess you <laughs> to study um, I, get these, that,
0: these, I get that a lot here in Iowa. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> these are out-of-the-way
1: places. Uh, there's really n- no real distinguishing feature to them. So, for example, I mean, historians are often interested in uh, hotbeds of revolution. So, a place with a university or a particularly sensitive industry, like uh, the, uh, the optics works in Iena, for example, um, um, have some micro-studies of those places. Uh, but Granze Perleberg, there's really uh, not much to them. Um, uh, Perleberg is... Uh, the county of Perleberg is almost exactly halfway between Berlin and Hamburg and uh, it has uh, two main cities Perleberg which is an administrative center and then a working a working class town of uh, Wittenberge and Wittenberge has a couple industries in it, uh, it has a sewing machine factory it used to be a Singer sewing machine factory uh, and in the East German times it produced a sewing machine called Veritas that was very well known in East Germany in fact was uh, of decent enough quality that could be exported uh, both to the West and to the Soviet Union. Um, also had a uh, uh, synthetic, uh, synthetic oil plant, so uh, margarine and uh, you know, cottonseed oil plant, that kind of thing. Um, also a very large railworks uh, that's still there. Uh, the other three main factories in town have since closed. Uh, so it was, it, it was a little little more of a working class than, than Perleberg. Um but uh, no no uh real uh, sensitive sites. Uh as mm-hmm. such. Granze uh is northwest uh, excuse me, slightly northeast of Berlin. Um also, not much uh, there apart from uh, today uh, tourists might find their way there because uh, there is Ravensbrück, which is a former concentration camp uh, for female inmates also run. Uh, well, at least uh, some of the guards were female there. Most of them were female there. Um, so it's of, of uh, interest to historians because of the gender presence. Um, and uh, there were a lot of military bases in Grenze. Uh There were Soviet military bases and East German military bases so the, the Stasi was uh i would say a little more nervous in grannze than it was in other places because of this very very strong military presence mm-hmm. um, but apart from that uh, there's no real distinguishing features i have to say they they are quite quite beautiful areas it's uh it's very flat there it's in the north german plain mm-hmm. uh there's great cycling uh mm-hmm. today they're really trying to build their economies around cycling in fact uh Grenze, the uh the berlin copenhagen uh Bike path goes. It's right past Grunz. It goes right past the Ravensbruck, uh, former concentration camp. Uh, mm. And so there's uh, there's a, there's a little bit of a tourist industry growing up around cycling in the area today. Um, but you know, depressed. I would say they're they're a little bit depressed after uh, certainly after some of the changes that occurred mm. when the wall fell and the industries closed and they're trying to reinvent themselves. Um, but the uh the Elbe river goes uh, quite close to uh to Wittenberg actually goes right it's right along Wittenberga, and then um yeah, drifts away but it's uh it is a striking mm-hmm. strikingly beautiful area and mm-hmm. it's uh, uh for many east germans uh, they they sort of find their way up there as a as a weekend away from berlin
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i see so let's actually uh, begin the story of um a kind of Stasi career, because in, in a way, what you do is a sort of prosopography. You don't, it's, it's not quite in the statistical sense, but uh, you, you, you talk to people who were uh, involved with the uh, Stasi in one way or another. So uh, let's let's begin a career at the beginning. How, how did you um, make your way into the Stasi as an agent? How did they recruit people?
1: Well, it changed over time. So maybe I'll start with the end, um, because that's a, the easiest to understand. But at the at the end. They were increasingly just recruiting from uh their own uh um, offspring so uh, <laughs> well it was it, it made it made it made so much sense because um it was incredibly labor intensive to vet a candidate and this is one thing that I think uh really we need to pay a little bit more attention to is just how many people in East Germany would have um been monitored even even if only briefly, uh, because they were in the acquaintance circle of somebody who was being considered for officer duty in stasi or uh, or as an informant um, because they monitored more or less everybody in your uh, in your acquaintance circle, so your family and friends uh your uh, uh if you had siblings their their families um uh, your, you know, your, uh, typically male, so the the, the wife and, and her family, uh, they were all investigated. Now, that was so labor-intensive that as the years went on, they realized that most of that work would already have been done. Um, and so if you took the son or daughter of a, of a Stasi officer, then you really saved yourself a lot of work because you already had vetted mm-hmm. most of the family. Um, so that's increasingly what they did.
0: Just like the mafia. What's that? <laughs> I say just like the mafia. They should go back to you. That's right. Mm-hmm. um but before that, uh, uh,
1: uh typically, They would recruit from something called the Felix Felix Straczynski Regiment, which was a regiment uh, that guarded party and Stasi buildings, uh, primarily in Berlin. Um, And if you wanted to do your military service in the Felix Straczynski Regiment, uh, you knew what it was. It meant that you were guarding Stasi and party installations. And that immediately meant that you were probably predisposed to some kind of Stasi work. and so, when when you went to the to the recruiting office, as as you probably know, uh, uh, military service was um, compulsory in East Germany. Uh, when you went to your to your recruiting office, when you had to uh, show up, uh, I forget what age it was, eighteen or something. Um, they, they would ask all sorts of questions, and this and a Stasi officer would be there, unbeknownst to the candidate. A Stasi officer would be there to hear how the the candidate was responding to questions about entering the military, and if they if they. Uh, for example, volunteered to do longer military service than required. That was certainly something that the study would notice and uh, and follow up on um and if they if they uh, had indicated interest in joining the Felix Dzerzhinsky Regiment instead of the uh, regular army, that was also something that was of interest to the to the Stasi recruiter who who sat in on this conversation. Um, so this was sort of a bit of background preparation. Then the, then the candidate would go off and they would join join the military or wherever they went. Um, they would typically then have to work. Uh, it was very important for the Stasi that uh, that their employees had experienced life as a worker. Uh, so many of them were. Um, uh, uh, I wouldn't say just uh, uh ordinary laborers but slightly slightly higher than that um although not quite technocrats. And uh, and they would do that typically for a few years, and then the Stasi would, would sort of evaluate this pattern. So what had they said from the time that they were recruited into the Army, what kind of experience that they had as a worker, and then they might uh, make the approach at that point. Um, nobody volunteered for, for service in the Stasi. In fact, if that had happened, the Stasi would probably uh, <laughs> uh, deny them for good because, well, they, they were always worried about moles. Um, so you were approached, you were always approached by the Stasi, right? Rather than the other way around, and uh, yeah, and so it, it typically, it typically, they were recruited out of the Felix Dzerzhinsky Regiment. That was the that was the main recruiting grounds.
0: So but as I said, as time went on, it became increasingly family members. Mm-hmm. And these were, uh, let's talk a little bit about gender. These were almost always men.
1: Yes. Uh, also, uh, I think uh, very important uh, to keep in mind is uh n- not only were the officers uh, almost all men, uh, about eighty-five to ninety percent. Um, but uh, almost all of the informants too, uh, mm-hmm. about 85% of the informants. And even for the officers, there were women who worked for the STASI. Um, so when you see the overall numbers, you know, there are 91,000 people who worked for the STASI in 1989. And when you see the all- overall numbers, you can see that there are some women who work there, but they're almost all in some support duty. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're either um, uh, custodial, uh, secretarial, uh, in Berlin, uh, uh, there are some uh, who work in the male opening uh, departments. Um, there are virtually no female operational officers, mm-hmm. you know, ones who would run informants, ones who would be out in the field monitoring, uh, virtually none. So it's very very interesting that in East Germany, which prided itself on uh, equality of labor and uh, the advancement of women uh, in the Stasi absolutely has no place for them mm.
0: so Now, uh, let's say I'm in the Stasi now. I'm a young man. I'm in the Stasi. I worked. I did all the things I have to do. Uh, What's next? Do I go to school? Is there Stasi school? Yeah,
1: Yeah, there's Stasi school. That's right. So once you join the Stasi, the first thing is an elaborate ceremony where you go and you swear your oath of allegiance. Uh, You usually do it with your group of of incoming, uh, your incoming class. And uh, some people will hold the flag, uh, the East German flag at the front of the class uh, while this big swearing-in ceremony takes place. Uh, Some of the uh, – and they do it for all of the employees of the Stasi, so not just the officers. Um, And some of the secretaries that I interviewed thought this was really intimidating, you know, that they they just – join the join Sta for a job to you know to transcribe a few things the next thing they're swearing this oath of allegiance in front of a sea of east German flags um so you did that and then you you know, you typically read up on on directives and uh uh case studies uh, uh particularly um, exemplary uh Operations that had happened in the Stasi and pretty especially in your district um and uh and then before you went to before you went to school, you typically engaged in some very low level uh surveillance that almost everybody in the office would make fun of you for um so you know you would have to sit in your trabby outside the train station and uh you know. Take off who was coming and going um, you would have to uh, you know again some of this vetting that took place uh, um You just have to sit and and monitor somebody whose job, let's say, would take them in in contact with the West, uh, maybe a truck driver or something like that, Um, and you just have to sit and and monitor their comings and goings, I mean, completely boring, completely mundane, uh, before you moved up and and started running informants and having Mm -hmm. what would for them be more interesting work. Um, There were several schools that the STASI had. The STASI had specialized schools, for example, in foreign language training. and they had a school in Granze. now that's just coincidence by the way that they actually have the school in the district that i studied but uh a lot of a lot of Stasi officers would know Granze from going to school there um, which uh uh typically taught them things about uh, Russian history uh taught them about uh, uh the history of the secret police uh communism uh you know uh, the problems of the western world um Sort of a base, a base knowledge in uh, in Marxism and uh, uh, in the secret police history. I would say, mm-hmm. um, and that was and and that was something that that uh, almost all the officers did at a base level. Then they had the more sophisticated uh, school that was in Potsdam, uh, the Stasi College of Law, uh, euphemistically named, and there there they got into much more detailed. Um, Things about operations. They wrote dissertations, for example. It was a four year course. Um, most of them had to move there to do it. You could do it a little bit by distance education, but uh, most of them had to move to uh, Potsdam and, and stay there for the duration. Um, and uh, these theses are absolutely fascinating. They're they're one of the great collections I think in the Stasi archive. It's all the theses that were written, uh, all the dissertations that were written by Stasi officers at this uh, so-called Stasi College of Law, um, and they're very detailed operational uh, issues, not like the you know general questions of Marxism, for example, at the mm-hmm. at the Granze School. And it's just a um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I, one of the officers that I interviewed, uh, he was telling me that Marcus Wolf um, mm-hmm. came to as one of the guest lecturers uh, at this at this school, and. Uh, you know, he just sat there at the front with no notes. This 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 Stasi officer was very impressed that Marcus Wolf would sit there with no notes and just talk about, um, you know, talk about uh, how how one engages in uh,
0: in espionage. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talked for hours on end. Mm-hmm. So, uh, all right, now I've gone to school and everything. Do I get to run yep. informants now? Do I get to find informants? Coworkers, yep. I think they're mitarbeiter, or something, right? Or what do they call right, them? Yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Unofficial unofficial co workers, uh is the is the exact translation. And it's interesting when I when I talk to the Stasi officers, they still think of them that way. <laughs> they think of them as as really as co workers, not as not as uh as somebody they were running to yeah. to monitor, but these actual like colleagues, you know, partners in arms. And, um and some of them are, are are still in touch with them. Uh um, just as an aside, one of the one of the people that I interviewed is uh, uh, he was definitely the most remorseful. I would say the only one who was really remorseful at all about what he had done. He, he regretted it, and after the wall fell, he uh, reinvented himself. He went to school for three years and he became a physiotherapist. Uh, it was a very successful physiotherapy practice on the main square in one of the towns, and uh, uh, and some some of his patients are his former informants. Mm-hmm. It's very strange that you know they come in and. And, and you know, he puts ice on their knee, and they talk about the old days. Um, anyway, uh, 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 so yeah, so once you've once you've kind of done uh, the base training, uh, and you begin to move up the ranks, you you do you are put in charge of informants. And at first, your roster would be quite small. Um, yeah maybe you know, under ten um but as as time goes on, you build it up and uh till towards the end uh you typically run twenty five to thirty informants, which of course is a huge roster uh of informants i mean there's something certainly something of a law of diminishing returns coming in mm-hmm. into effect um because it's hard to meet with them uh, you just don't have the time in the day mm-hmm. um and then you know you, some of them are better than others, and so you try to bring the other ones along, and it's just increasing, increasingly time-consuming. Uh, so once you once you become what they called a, an, an informant running officer, you were you were moving up through the ranks. Um, and uh yeah, that would be that would typically be within you know, within ten years you would probably reach captain status mm-hmm. and uh and, and be running informants mm-hmm. in, in certainly one of the precincts. This is the the, the ones that I know best. Um so, so how did you
0: I'm sorry, so yep. I was gonna say how how did you find your informants? Who did you pick?
1: Uh well that yeah, that, that's they would typically You know, they would typically start off by uh, thinking of where they needed informants. Mm -hmm. So maybe the sewing machine factory, maybe the railway outfitting works, uh, church, what have you. And then they would investigate that situation to see who might be uh, a reasonable candidate for an informant. Uh, How would they do that? They would talk with the factory boss. They would talk with the school principal. Um, Churches were harder, of course, because they couldn't um, – they didn't have – Sort of ready-made informants in there, uh, like they would in a factory or a school mm. or something. Um, now that was that was sort of the ideal, but the reality was very different. Uh, and this is one of the points that I make is that this sort of what looks like targeted surveillance um, really breaks down because frequently they would take somebody who, uh, you know, they didn't they didn't necessarily need uh, in a certain site. Um, you know, if. if for example, if a school principal ever said, uh, which they often did, I think that this individual would be a good candidate for as an informant, the SASI would leap at that, regardless of whether the school they thought was a particularly strategic site or something that needed to be monitored, they would leap at it because, I mean, this was a young informant. Um, and they And they needed to uh to be aware of what was happening, so they would they would take that um, uh, hospitals medical sector uh those were heavily penetrated, so typically the Stasi would uh, would talk to uh, um, the chief of medicine or the, the uh, hospital administrator, and uh, they would be frequently informants themselves, but they would also ask you know well who among the physician corps or the assistants here might make a uh, might a suitable informant um so they, they they typically use their own networks, uh, police officers uh, frequently would talk to them about possible informants um, and then of course, once you have informants, you can use them to find other informants It mm-hmm. sort of builds on itself
0: so what did you what did you want your informants to do?
1: There were different levels of informants um, so some of them actually worked operations uh, uh so for example uh, one of the uh, one of the operations I talk about one of the most interesting ones was uh this operation that took place in 1987 uh when uh two boys went to a Soviet base near uh Granze and uh they were scaling into it. This is something that they'd done in the past. Uh they tended to uh, steal little little things for their mopeds, uh spare parts and what have you. Uh and uh and one night they, they did this in a in a Russian soldier, a young Russian soldier who was on duty Saw them screaming and uh, told them to get out. Fired a warning shot in the air. They did. They were, uh, one of them ran out. The other one was already in the forest. Uh, and they were and he was running away. And the Soviet soldier gave chase, which was highly unusual. Uh, and he actually shot them both dead. Um, now that was scandalous. Uh, they were running away from him. And in fact, the autopsy uh, revealed that the Russian soldier himself said that uh, that they they had a weapon and they were turning to fire at him. Uh, The the doctor who performed the autopsy said very clearly, and it's it's quite striking in the documents, that there is an inconsistency in the Russian soldier's account because the bullet is uh, in the back. The bullet entry wound is in the back. So what we have is a Russian soldier who shoots um, uh, these teenage boys uh, running away from him in peacetime in 1987. I mean, Gorbachev is already in. It's very close to the end. Um, I mean, of course, a tragedy. So the Stasi uh, has to exercise damage control and uh, they use their informers to do so. So the first thing they have to do is monitor the father of those two boys because they don't want him to know exactly what happened. Of course he knows that his his kids uh, have been killed, but they don't want him to know that they, that they were shot in the back. That was very important. Um, and so they would use informants. You know, one category of informants would be this kind of informant who worked a specific operation. So this uh, this uh, situation arises, they take these informants and they say, okay, you monitor this person. Uh, you, you know, befriend him if you have to. Uh, find out his other friends, just get into his circle of acquaintances and monitor him. Make sure he's not talking about it. Find out whatever you can, any plans that he might have against the Russians, or to try to find out what his boys had, uh, you know, how his boys had really died and what have. Um, uh, The mother, by the way, was uh, the the parents had divorced and the mother was had moved away, and it's interesting. It was never very clear in the documents why she did play more of a role. I think she really just been out of their lives for for a while, Um, so she's not a factor in this. The father is the subject of the operation. So that 's one category informant, the one who works in operation. another is just a a, a general societal observer. you know somebody who would tell you if uh, somebody had told a joke about the East German leader, um, plenty of examples of those um, you know, if they had overheard something in a pub, um, if, uh, uh, especially in the earlier days, I mean, in the 1950s and 1960s, the documents are just rife with these absolutely um, what seemed to me innocuous observations by the informants, uh, you know, so-and-so were talking to a woman uh, on the phone at his workplace. Well the was married and turned out to be his wife. Mm-hmm. Um there was uh um uh, you know somebody else uh um was doing the rounds with one of these computer, uh, excuse me, calculator games. You know, if you multiply Eric Honecker's phone number by uh, the year that the Communist Party was founded and you divide it by, all you know, those games, he turned it upside down and what did it say? Scheiße, you <laughs> know, in, in German. Well, this was duly reported, you know, innocuous. In, in, uh, in, 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 but again, the Stasi investigates it. Um, one of the Stasi informants they had worked at a movie theater the uh, the illustriously named Alhambra movie wow. theater. Wow. Yeah, I know. Um and so he worked at the Alhambra movie theater and uh and he would just report on who came to the movies. Um, you know, he uh, you know came with long hair. That was very suspicious. Uh, you know, other kids were kind of hooting and hollering. At some point, I mean, the kind of thing that would go on here, and nobody would really pay much mind to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this does instigate it. Um, Interestingly, one of the one of the funny things there was uh, there's a a movie that they wanted to show, but it had some scene about the Prague Spring in it. Uh, you know, from 1968, and so. So they asked their informant to clip out that scene. <laughs> um, well, of course, he clips up the wrong scene, um, so that the 1968 Prague Spring stays on and something else celebrating the, uh, the the glorious Bulgarian movement and something I don't know what it was that gets clipped out. So the Stasi was you know, mortified that this guy uh, 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 chopped the wrong scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had general societal observers as informants. You had these ones who actually worked cases, and then you had another category of informant altogether uh, who just offered their apartment. As a place for an officer to meet with an informant, um, and those were called uh, uh, conspiratorial dwelling informants. So, uh, I think of them as a safe house or something. But see, I mean, but the these officers had to meet with their informants. They had to meet them somewhere. They couldn't meet at the precinct. They couldn't meet at the informant's workplace. So. They had to meet somewhere else. Uh, Sometimes, you know, if the weather was nice, they'd meet outside um, in parks. They'd go for a walk in the forest or something. Um, But it was always better to have a uh, a place where they could meet. Mm -hmm. Uh, So some informants didn't actually inform for the Stasi. They simply gave their house keys, which in itself is a big deal, um, gave their house keys to uh, the Stasi officer um, to use, and then they would be uh, away from the Mm -hmm. the informants at the time.
0: I'm sorry, were the informants paid?
1: No. Uh, did they you know, get anything? You know, they got, other they than... got little bonuses, little bonuses, little presents. Uh, you know, Santa, for example, uh, uh, on their birthday, or uh, if it was a female—the you know, rare case when it was a female informant—on oh. uh, uh, International Women's mm-hmm. Day, you know, they might get a bouquet of flowers. They might get a little monetary bonus. Well, um, they might get a delivery of coal. But why but did they really nothing?
0: If they weren't paid, why did they do it? Yeah, this is... Um, you yeah, know, this, this sort is of the money they, question, as we would say, yeah, isn't it? the money yeah. question,
1: yeah. Um, there's been a lot of really good work on uh, motivations of informants. And as you might expect, it runs the gamut. Uh, some of them, there's no question, were believers in the cause. Uh, and they felt that they were... Uh, doing something to support the East German state, you know, the more peaceful Germany compared to the fascist West Germany. They actually believed that kind of thing, so they they, they wanted to become informant. Um Others who fear the consequences of saying no, I and mean, obviously once you were approached by the Stasi and you uh, we know that if they said no, nothing happened to them. The study simply just archi- put, sent their file to the archive, and that was it. Of course, they didn't know that at the time. They certainly would have feared consequences. So some of them did uh, fear. Um, others you know, liked a little bit of the power that was involved. Um and uh, yeah, some of them I, I would say the very rare case tried to kind of use it against the Stasi. Uh, that happened a little bit in the earlier period, not so much in the later period, um, where they would you know try to use their the information they gained uh, um, by working with the Stasi to to their own advantage, you know, mm-hmm. to try to get out of East Germany and what have you. Um, but again, that was that was fairly rare. Um, yeah, so so, so so varying
0: motivations. So let me. Hi. Now, let me ask the following question because I, I I just find it fascinating. It, it and I may be reading this wrong, and you, as a student of the opposition or lack thereof, can can answer this. I think um, uh, we were talking a few weeks ago to um, Steve Kotkin, who uh, sort of studied the the nineteen um, uh, the events of nineteen eighty nine, the revolutions of 1980. We also talked to Padraig Kenny on the show, and and oh, one yeah. of the things that um, yeah. That seems clear to me, at least both of them sort of said, that with the exception of Poland, there was no organized opposition anywhere in Eastern Europe after the 1950s. Organized. Mm -hmm. Now, there was some opposition, but there was no organized opposition. So if that is true, there was nothing for the Stasi to find. (laughs) Yet they continued to look. So how are we to understand this? Year after year, I mean, you have people that you interview who say, I worked for 20 years. I never found anything. But, uh, you know, X was screwing Y's wife. Pardon my French. Yeah. Right.
1: Uh, so, exactly. No
0: uh,
1: Yeah. Um and that, that is that is a very interesting refrain from the Stasi officers that I interviewed. That this sort of disillusionment that sets in. They expected to find the saboteurs. Yeah, you know, they actually expected to find the the wreckers, you know, the ones who were going in and, and deliberately wrecking um production or uh, you know, one of the ones that I talk about actually that I think is kind of kind of funny is that you know they 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 heard that there were um East German dissidents out there that were improperly milking the cows.
0: You know, so that they, <laughs> they out here in Iowa too. No. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And
1: and you know, some study officers that I interviewed actually joined the study in this privacy here they wanted to find those improper milkers. Um and of course they didn't. They didn't exist. Uh, and as them said, you know, lot, sure, I found lots of people who were lazy, um, but I didn't find anybody who were who I consider a real regime opponent. Um, so yeah. So the question is, why? You know, why did they have? Well, they they, they did other things. I mean, of course, there was a paranoia, and I would say an institutionalized paranoia um, that grew over the years. And and because they made the informant the backbone of their uh, uh repression apparatus um it had no choice but to grow you know because if if you say that the the bottom line is how many informants you have well then yeah. you you, ab- you just Keep pressure on your uh, officer class to get more informants. And every year they increase the number of informants. So, you know, as I said, one person trying to run 25 informants, it's almost impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the districts that I looked at, you know, the, the, the staff was typically meeting uh, seven times a day, every day with informants. So there were seven seven separate meetings with informants from the case officers. I mean, these are small precincts. Um, in uh they only had 35 employees. It included everybody. That included the building security. That included the custodial, the secretarial. Um, so in that district, seven times a day, they're meeting with informants every single day of the year. Um, I mean, that's. It's, I, I, I think this is one of the... Uh, um, Great weaknesses of the Stasi is that by putting so much emphasis on the informants, they just uh, focused on having this huge roster of informants. So they equated more ros- more informants with greater security, and they didn't really think about whether you know there was much to monitor. Um, which, as you said, there really wasn't, especially in these out of the way areas. But they did. Uh, I mean, they did other things too. So, for example, they um, they engaged in uh, uh, in making sure that. Uh, medical professional didn't leave um, and this was this was a real issue for them um even after nineteen sixty one many many physicians, many dentists were able to to sneak out of west germany uh, excuse me East Germany, especially because they were going to a conference or something uh related to their work. They could just stay and just, um the so prevention of, of that kind of thing was, was one of the occupations that they had um, also monitoring for for spies uh even out in the district that I looked at they we always had a uh what was the um Department two that dealt with counter espionage. a mm-hmm. uh, little more present in Grande because of the, the number of military bases that were there. Um so they would they would deal with, with some things that we might think of as pretty typical of a secret police, you know, in terms of counter espionage. Um so they had these other things that they were working on. It also increased the, the roster. Uh but it is it is it is fascinating that uh yeah, they developed this huge Uh, for what they thought might be lurking out there. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that I come back to on that is is John uh, Giac's history of the KTB, which is that since the Bolsheviks were a conspiracy that gained power... They were all very concerned. that There were other people like that out there. Mm-hmm. You know, that there were other conspiracies in the making, uh, and and I think that mentality uh, was brought over to the Stasi. Certainly, we know the Russian influence is very strong. Um, that you always had to be, you know, as communists in particular, you always had to
0: be on the lookout for conspiracy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's. I think there's definitely something to that. Did you ever find in your interviews somebody who was kind of reflective on that very question? That is, that they ever say? For example, well, you know, I don't really, I didn't really understand why we were preventing people from going to the West if they wanted to.
1: Um, There was one uh, officer that I that that I talked to um, who was very well educated and uh, uh, and and never offered party platitudes. Always had something thoughtful to say, and and he talked about this issue. uh, certainly, those in the health sector are moving, and, and he said, "You know, to me, that that's not a question of communism or capitalism or you know, uh, dictatorship or democracy. If a dentist leaves, then." Uh, you know, thousands of people in the district to go without dental care. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he thought of it in in those terms that it, sort of preventing them was the right thing to do um, because of the the health care that would suffer and that these people would you know ordinary people would suffer um, if physicians that is left. Um, but the, the others others reflect it very much on this all this this vetting um, and these endless just. Reports on the population uh, so you know the vetting of 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 everybody so candidates for the study as informant or officer um uh those who you know would be traveling west in their line of work um uh, uh, those who would be uh, particularly sensitive positions uh the Stasi vetted all of these people and they just thought it was an incredibly enormous amount of work for really uh didn't have to fall to the Stasi you know, almost anybody could have done that um and uh and some of them did reflect on uh, uh what they called a uh, perverted level of surveillance you know this is, for example if there was any kind of public event. Uh, in 1989, Pearl Berger celebrated the 750th anniversary of its founding. Mm-hmm. They had a celebration for it. This would be typical—you know, buskers and bands and you know, kids events and all that kind of thing. Uh, well the STASI was absolutely paranoid about this mm-hmm. um, and had a special task force established and had informants everywhere, informants at the evening dances, informants at the parades, you know, informants at the at church at an open house, so there was informants at the church. I mean this kind of absolutely saturated penetration of just the public event. Uh, some officers did think that that, was, uh, that that was something that really, the Ministry for State Security yeah, didn't have to deal with the ministry. The ministry for state security didn't have to deal with buskers. Yeah, yeah. Right. It, it had things. In their view was there were other things that they should be dealing with, but this was the kind of day-to-day work that. They did.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, got, I was going to say I got a ticket once for riding my bike on the sidewalk, and that's kind of what I thought about the cop who gave it to me. Oh, I was like, Look, yeah, that's, don't you think better to that, do? That, that, yes. I deserved it, that though. Is, that, I admit it. I, that, I deserved it. I, don't know. That's, I was sorry, busted. I did it. Started. I was wrong. I, I shouldn't why. have done it. But anyway, let me um, <laughs> let me ask uh, let me let me ask one final question about the Sazi before I ask you what you're working on now. H- how have the uh, and this is a kind of an interesting part of the story, and I'm glad that you tell it. Uh, these people are still alive. How have they fared in the new federal republic? Or actually, it's not the federal republic anymore. What is it? It's uh, what do they call that now? Yeah.
1: No, it is the federal. It's republic. It's the federal here. republic, right? Yeah. yeah. So how, yeah. how have they yeah. how have they fared? <laughs> Uh, well, uh, if you ask me, they fared quite well. If you ask them, it's a bit a catastrophe. Um, they get uh pensions uh, because they were in essentially the public sector in East Germany. Um, and uh, uh, most of them, I mean, of course there was a transition period. And, and some of them found jobs. Um, some of them were young enough to be trained. But I would say most of the ones that I interviewed... Uh, and just found something tied them over to retirement. Um, and uh, some of them worked low level security. Uh, as a, one of them was a physiotherapist. Uh, one of them opened a, a convenience store. Um, some of them moved away. Uh, you know, a couple of the ones who worked in the district moved to West Germany. I, I wasn't able to track them down. One of them, men uh, moved to Sweden. Um, another one who worked in the district had a, had a um, terrible demise. He got involved in drugs and uh, ended up being murdered in Hamburg. Um, but yeah, for, for the most part, I mean, they, they've they adjusted. Um, I think they're... Uh, I agree most of them in their, in their home setting. They all seem comfortable. Uh, they have places to live and um you know, sort of surrounded by nice things. Um they tend to spend most of their time with their family. Uh very few of them talk about Stasi anymore with really anybody. Um uh, one of them uh you know his kid continued to deny that his father worked for the Stasi mm-hmm. when they're out in public. Um but you know for the most part yeah they're not they're not completely down and out uh, they've just gone on with life, and for the most part, it's been it's been a, a decent, maybe not as not as lucrative uh, a job as one the one side, but it's been a decent living, and and they're quite comfortable now. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them, the younger ones, there was one younger. I mean, he uh, he started a transportation company uh, with somebody who actually worked in an office
0: with him, um, and. Uh, but yeah, and, the, and, and, reason, the, the reason I asked this because they a lot of them in, in your interviews, um, and we're about to run out of time, but because I, I want you to deal with this quickly. In the interviews, a lot of them were afraid they were going to be strung up from uh, lampposts in. 19. 19- oh yeah, yeah, right.
1: yeah. I mean, a lot of them were very worried uh, about retaliation. Uh, right, but that hasn't 19- but
0: that hasn't happened. There hasn't been any retaliation. Nobody's been, as far as we know
1: no not not in the ones on the- and none of them has been charged uh, really not, in- of the, not the ones that i dealt with and uh, the other like uh, broadly no there hasn't been a lot of uh uh public you know, engagement and humiliation or retaliation yeah. with the with Stasi officers. In fact, uh, you know, in 2006, it was something really remarkable where there was a, uh, uh, there was a service at uh, Hohenschönhausen, which is a prison in East Berlin that the Stasi used, and there was, uh there was a little memorial celebration there, uh, and victims of the Stasi were there talking about conditions. Well, Stasi officers showed up, including the last leader of the Stasi, the uh Volkang uh, uh, uh He showed up. They showed up at this uh, commutative service for the victims of the Stasi and challenged them, challenged mm. the victims and said, well, you know, there wasn't abuse in the Stasi prison, mm-hmm. and there wasn't this, and you're making it up. Mm-hmm. I mean, It's an incredible affront uh, to those who have suffered under the Stasi. Mm-hmm. So some of them are actually, some Stasi officers are, are still very much sort of public in ceremony and speak their minds.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Well, uh, you know, Gary, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I, I really appreciate it. It's a terrific book. We've been talking to Gary Bruce about uh, his new work, The Firm, The Inside Story of the Stasi. Gary, um, let me uh, ask our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what is your next project? What are you working on now? Well, I'm actually working
1: on something uh, different. It's a it's a personal project. It's something that I've been interested in um, for a long time, and it's got nothing to do with the Stasi. Uh, I'm not finished with the Stasi, but I'm just Working on this other um, project in the interim. Um, and, and that is uh, the Berlin Zoo. And I know it's a long way from Stasi, but uh, the Berlin Zoo has a fascinating uh, fascinating history. I mean, it was founded by the absolute luminaries of uh, East Germany. I was, <laughs> can't, can't get out of the line. Germany, um, the people like Alexander von Humboldt, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, Lepsius, the great uh, egyptologist uh, and uh, and along the way uh, in the late nineteenth century early twentieth century uh the Berlin new began exhibiting uh human beings uh different <laughs> cultural groups um so they were they were people in the berlin zoo uh, for example uh, uh, uh aboriginal um chileans uh, uh tribes to north africa um actually one point a group of labrador uh Inuit were supposed to go over but uh, unfortunately died in uh, in europe it's actually been in the news a little bit lately too um and uh, and and the Berlin Zoo during the Nazi period is absolutely fascinating as well, um, because of an incredibly successful um, breeding program that they had. It was used by the Nazis to breed uh, indigenous European cattle, other animals, huh. and and introduce them to the Eastern landscape. I mean, as you know, the, part of the premise of the Nazis was to to make Eastern Europe German, whether it was through yep. architecture and plants. Of course, you know. Um, populations as well, uh, but it, it involved animals as well, and so mm. the, the Berlin Zoo was used for that, yeah. and of course afterwards, the East Berlin Zoo becomes uh, uh, this flagship communist uh, uh, example, it's actually set up in an old uh, nobility's estate, um, also- and in 1990 they, they join again. Because-
0: it also, Incidentally, if I recall correctly, and I don't know if I do, it's also where the uh, the Nazi euthanasia program was located. It was Tiergartenstrasse something, wasn't it? Am I right. wrong about that? Uh, yeah, it was right there, yeah, though.
1: It, 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 it was T4, T- Tiergartenstrasse uh, 4. But, uh, Maybe it was someplace yeah, else. It, I don't it, know. It's, it's, it's
0: actually not so. It's totally incidental. But anyway. Yeah, it's I, I so just remember close Tiergarten, to the Tiergartenstrasse. Yeah. But yeah, anyway. Right. Well, yeah. Gary, I, I want to say thank, good luck on the project. And when you get it done, we'll be happy to have you back on the show. Um, okay. uh, I look forward to that. And thank you uh, uh, very much for being with us today.
1: Well, I want to thank you, Marshall, for uh, not only today but for uh, all of the great work that you've done in uh, sure. New Books in History. It's really terrific. I know I think on behalf of academic and non-academics, so you've done such a great service for all of Well, people. thanks very much.
0: I really appreciate it. All right, catch okay, you here. Bye bye. Bye bye. You've been listening to an interview with Gary Bruce about his new book, *The Firm: The Inside Story of the Stasi*. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.